You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, while Israel's leader Netanyahu labels Hamas Nazis, Germany grapples with its past and its future engagement in the Middle East. This is the savagery that we only remember from the Nazi crimes of the Holocaust. Hamas are the new Nazis. As allegations fly, it's hard to verify what's true. We speak to a member of the investigative journalism group Bellingcat. China is also worried about fake news. The security agency has issued a stark warning on AI. Then... Vous écoutez France Inter, il est complètement 18 heures. We'll ask what's behind the renaissance in French radio figures. With a roundup of news from the Balkans, we'll round off the show looking at how live performance captures the zeitgeist. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israeli soldiers say they found a tunnel shaft used by Hamas militants at Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. Hamas denies this. Spain's parliament voted to make Pedro Sanchez prime minister for another term on Thursday, ending a protracted deadlock after an inconclusive general election in July. And Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have committed to pursuing mutually beneficial relations in their first face-to-face talks in a year. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the Israeli Defence Force has been striking the densely populated Gaza Strip in reaction to an attack by Hamas on October the 7th, during which the militant group killed around 1,200 Israelis. Hamas says the Israeli strikes have killed more than 11,000 Palestinians. There are many back-channel conversations and high-level negotiations ongoing about how to stop the fighting and provide humanitarian aid. But world leaders and think tanks are also looking at what happens after the war. Politico has reported that it's seen a document in which the German government floats five different scenarios about the future of the Gaza Strip. Well, I'm joined now from Berlin by John Kampfner, a journalist and broadcaster and author of a new book called In Search of Berlin. John, uh, many thanks for joining us. Welcome to The Globalist. What is the German plan as far as we know? It is still, excuse me, it is still um, uncertain and the Germans are wise enough to know that nothing moves when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians without the Americans. So the fact that the the Germans were floating this and that relations between Berlin and Washington are very strong at the moment suggests there is some element of agreement or at least of flying a kite. And there have been various variants um, running around about Gaza. The main elements tend to be a mixture of the UN, the European Union, the United States, uh, and a considerable uh, Middle East and Gulf presence, somehow forming some sort of umbrella body 
um, overseen by the UN in in running Gaza, but it's incredibly cumbersome how that would work. The idea of the the Americans, the Germans, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and possibly others somehow having jurisdiction over Gaza, but with the Israelis having ultimate uh, security rights, is a complex one. Oh, a hugely complex. Uh, I, I wonder what the United Nations thinks of this suggestion that it might take control of Gaza when the fighting ends. Well, the issue isn't so much the principle. The issue is the practicality. How do you do it? How do you rebuild a small strip that already before these this latest uh, horror violence that started on October the 7th uh, and has ended with pretty much the pulverization of most of Gaza and certainly the northern and central parts, first of all, you have to think of basic reconstruction of services an incredibly traumatized population, then you have to think of the rebuilding, not just of physical infrastructure, but of systems as well, of political systems, which they haven't really had. They've had a Hamas government there for more than a decade. And um, you would have to uh, reinstitute, reconstitute elections. But how do you do that? In a, at a time of such complete uncertainty. Mm. When we talk about the United Nations, is one of the problems w- with any plan like that is that people are not talking about UN protection at the borders, but rather about UN control of Gaza. And that's the contentious word, whoever you replace UN with. Well, whatever it would be would only theoretically be temporary because the ultimate idea would be to have some sense of self-government, but some sense of self-government that would be acceptable to outside forces and most particularly to Israel. Now, how you do that, it is a bit of an oxymoron to say, we will eventually hand it back to you and we will encourage you to demonstrate self-determination. But by the way, you can't elect that lot and you can't elect that lot. So it is incredibly difficult. But I think that is in some ways that's theoretical and it is long term. The task once the peak of the violence has gone and the Israelis withdraw. I don't think they will completely withdraw for quite some time. But once they withdraw to some extent and the aid convoys start to arrive and basic restoration of services, and you've got the gruesome task of uh, so many dead bodies and uh, just an an absolute, and the fact that journalists cannot go there means, or they can't go there except under extreme controlled situation, means that the extent of the trauma and the extent of the damage is yet to be determined. Mm. Now, Berlin is one of Israel's staunchest allies within the EU. uh, And we've seen this uh, quote, Israel's goal is a goal we share. Never again should Hamas be in a position to terrorise Israel and its citizens. I wonder how far you would say that Germany feels extra responsibility for Israel beyond the rest of the EU because of the genocide of Jews in the Second World War. Oh, it absolutely does do that. And it's actually codified in that way when Angela Merkel, the former chancellor, was in Israel in 2008 and she gave a speech to the Knesset, to the Israeli parliament. She said that Germany's responsibility to and support for Israel unconditionally was part of its 
that she used the German term, she used the German term Staatsraison, which basically means reason of state or reason, raison d'etre. And therefore, it is absolutely now regarded as the bottom line for Germany, which in and of itself is correct and it is admirable after the Holocaust. But at the same time, I argued in a piece in The Guardian about 10 days or so ago, which ruffled a few feathers, that this can also be a straitjacket, not necessarily in terms of the principles and rational right-minded people would completely accept the principle and uh, endorse it, uh, linking it with the history of Germany during the Third Reich. But at the same time, if Germany does want to be, and it does want to be, a significant player in the eventual resolution of this crisis and a bigger player overall in international politics, which after all its allies have been begging it to do after sort of hiding, burying its head in the sand for so long, then when you are a, a bigger player and when you are, even if you are an incredibly close friend, it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. And Germany's support for Israel has been staunch. It has been at least as staunch as that of the United States or or the UK. But it is leading to some some fissures within within society as well. Well, just explore uh, that for a minute. Let's talk first of all about how united the European Union is. Where, where does Germany sit within that gamut of opinion within the EU? Because we know that there's been uh, quite a few hackles raised on this between members of the bloc. Absolutely. I mean, the EU is formally united on this. It is not nearly as united on it as it is, say, for example, on Ukraine, where with the exception of the outrider of Hungary and now Slovakia, the EU is absolutely staunchly in defense of of Ukraine. At a recent UN General Assembly vote, there was pretty much um, a three-way split um, in terms of the way EU member states voted. Uh, France and Spain voted with a resolution um, calling on Israel um, to allow for a humanitarian ceasefire. President Macron has uh, reiterated that more than once. No slip of the tongue, absolutely what he thinks. And the Germans are adamant that that should not be. They talk now about a humanitarian pause. And I think uh, that that, the pressure on that everywhere, including in the United States, where Anthony Blinken has talked about too many Palestinians, too many civilian deaths having now occurred. I think the pressure on Israel, having uh, gone into Al-Shifa Hospital and found certain uh, evidence of Hamas uh, headquarters, but not nearly as much as it was promising. I think the pressure on Israel will increase on that. And with that, the pressure on Germany as its closest friend, to stay that closest friend, but also gently to prompt Israel um, to start thinking about the next steps. And the question on the next steps, by the way, which is not Germany's to decide, is what happens to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is uh, an extraordinarily controversial figure, not just internationally, but um, domestically as well. Mm. Uh, I just want to round up by talking about um, the Turkey and Germany. There's been more bad blood between the two. Uh, Chancellor Olaf Schultz said this week that it was absurd for Turkish President Erdogan to accuse Israel of fascism. Uh, there's been the slanging match, but Schultz is due to host Erdogan in Berlin today. Tell us more about this. If you want to think of any bilateral relationship and use the word complicated, 
you couldn't think more than that of uh, between Germany and Turkey. There are at uh, various counts, seven million Turks uh, or people of Turkish origin living in Germany, which is seven or eight percent of the entire population. And many of them retain Turkish citizenship because um, hitherto Germany's system allows people uh, except in certain uh, circumstances to have only one passport. And many Turks have retained their Turkish citizenship, which means they can't vote in Germany. So it's incredibly complicated. The Turks uh, have the longest standing application to join the European Union, taking back more than a decade. And nothing has happened on that, partly because the Germans traditionally have been resistant. And yet the two countries are incredibly interlinked. Erdogan himself and Turkey as a country have become pivotal in so many parts of the world, not least in the Middle East. What Erdogan says and does is absolutely not irrelevant. It is very important. And so when uh, this leader, a NATO member, accuses Israel of fascism and calling it a terror state, it does matter. Now, Erdogan was obviously playing to his domestic audience. He has just controversially um, uh, been re-elected as president. And he uh, is consolidating his position and playing to anti-Israel sentiment. Now, when you look at Schultz's press conference yesterday, um, or two days ago, when he uh, cast Erdogan's responses absurd, it was said sharply, but given what Erdogan had said, I would venture that Schultz could have gone a lot further. No other world leader or any other political player could have got away with calling a terrorist, Israel a terrorist state and not had their trip cancelled or, or some greater consequences than just simply um, being slapped down. So Erdogan arrives today. Tensions will be difficult. The Middle East will dominate. But there are all kinds of mm -hmm. other issues. There are trade issues. Um, the Turks want to um, buy European defense equipment and the, and the German uh, um, uh, confirmation of that uh, will be incredibly important. And uh, this is going to be, and, and yes. Erdogan has not been here for four years, which in and of itself says how important this three-day trip is going to be. Absolutely. John, thank you very much indeed. John Kampfner there. This is The Globalist. In a complex war such as the one between the government of Israel and Hamas, where reporting conditions are difficult, it's sometimes problematic to verify facts. Often the information is controlled by the interested parties and the verification process can be very challenging, but it remains as vital as ever. So how to sort truth from propaganda? Well, I'm joined now by Charlotte Marr, an investigative journalist and social media editor at Bellingcat. Uh, Charlotte, many thanks for, for joining us here on The Globalist. How far can we take claims by either warring party at face value? Thanks so much for having me. Um, in terms of how much you can take claims, I would make sure that you treat everything you see online with a pinch of salt at the moment. Uh, treating all footage and claims with caution is super important. Um, at the moment, in times of conflict, it's not unknown, for example, for state actors to imply bad faith on the part of their adversaries. And uh, in some cases, we have seen staged videos appear online in previous conflicts. Um, so it's really, really important that everything you see, even if it comes from a state actor or a reputable account, you take it with a pinch of salt and you treat it 
with caution. Um, you can find guides actually on how to treat claims online on the Bellingcat website. So, so tell us though, how do fact checkers check facts? I mean, for instance, Israel now says it has evidence of a tunnel shaft under the Al Shifa hospital and has video evidence to prove this. Has what you've seen so far convinced you that it did hide some sort of Hamas command centre? So at Bellingcat, we work with the evidence we've been able to collect and analyse, and we don't step beyond those boundaries. Um, so we are known for working within these bounds. And in this particular uh, in this particular example, we haven't analysed the footage enough to kind of make any claims. Um, but how we actually fact check facts um, on a usual basis is we start with finding the original source, because often sources online don't tend to be the, the one that's highly shared doesn't tend to be the original source to start with. So that's always the first port of call. And once we've done that, we then compare it with multiple other sources from that uh, claim. So I know, for example, one of our ex-employees, uh, Eric Toller, who's currently at the New York Times, he has actually been uh, assessing that particular those particular videos, and he's been comparing them with news, uh, news media coverage of the uh, tunnels. And he can see disparities in terms of time, in terms of dates, and in terms of some items um, that are shown. Um, and they're actually the New York Times at the moment and Eric uh, on Twitter or X is actually doing a thread at the moment that you can you can go and look at uh, where he's breaking down kind of the comparisons he's making. Again, he hasn't made any um, outright claims yet. He's doing that analysis at the moment. And I'm just pointing you towards a source, mm. a reputable source that you could look at in terms of if you want to have step-by-step analysis on that on that particular case. Uh, there's another incident that is puzzling a lot of people. We were told that on the evening of Tuesday, October the 17th, uh, of a strike on Gaza's Al-Ahli Arab Hospital. It's often called the, the Baptist Hospital. And we were told that it killed at least 500 people uh, and that Israel was responsible. Now, Israel's denied it. And then the number of dead and wounded it also began to shift. In this case, uh, we believe the type of bomb might prove important. Israel says it can't possibly have been them because the crater wasn't big enough. So, yes, this particular case, this is something Bellingcat did look into. You can read our research on our website. Um, again, we, we only work with the evidence we've been able to collect. And in, in a lot of cases, just like this one, the weaponry is very important. And being able to kind of see shell remnants is something that would definitely give more certainty to any claims. Um, and that's un- impossible at the moment because ground analysis is restricted. Um, so that's been very difficult to assert and blame in that particular case. Um, what Bellingcat did find is that the impact, we found a crater, a, a small crater in the footage, um, and that crater isn't consistent with uh, the impact point of a JDAM, that's a Joint Direct attack munition, which is typically used by the Israeli army. That does not mean that there hasn't, it wasn't a different type of weapon uh, that was used by the IDF, but we could rule out to a certain degree that it was unlikely to be a JDM, um, which is the typical uh, weaponry used by the IDF. Mm. Uh, we queried yesterday on, on the programme why the aid apparently brought to the hospital by the IDF was labelled in English. How much do armies control their own propaganda? So I think in particular in this uh, crisis, uh, it's quite evident that uh, both uh, both warring parties are taking to social media to galvanise support. 
And in previous conflicts, uh, for example, in the current ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia, we've seen lots and lots of examples of state propaganda, um, particularly from the Russian side. Um, one example of this is uh, a video that we found in March 2023, which was a dashcam video that was circulating, allegedly showing a Ukraine soldier abusing a Russian-speaking citizen. And what Bellingcat found from lots of analysis is that that actually was untrue. Uh, it was a completely staged video on Rus behind Russian lines. Um, and that was widely shared and shared by the Russian government. So again, it's really important to triple check Make sure you find multiple claims for the source that you're um, that you're sharing, and think before you share. Mm. Um, even if it's a state actor and you are familiar with uh, their previous content or their previous claims, it doesn't mean that in times of war they are uh, treating uh, the their social media accounts with accuracy. Um, it is important to kind of sway public opinion in times of conflict and state actors and warring parties know this. And it's important uh, to get favor from foreign governments. So it's really, really important to take um, everything that they put online um, with caution. Has AI made the job of checking more difficult? I mean, can you identify when something's been created by artificial intelligence? At the moment, AI isn't uh, AI-generated imagery. Typically, uh, the stuff that is spread online um, in in a major way isn't sophisticated enough for us not to identify it. But to the to the general public eye, it might be misleading. Uh, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I got uh, an AI-generated image sent to me uh, of a Palestinian family, um, sent to me from a, a reputable Kenyan journalist who had received it in a WhatsApp group uh, from other journalists in Kenya. Um, so it's obviously getting around the world. There's, we've seen quite a lot of examples of AI-generated imagery going around, and sometimes it can be as innocently shared, just sharing it to kind of uh, convey a, uh, an emotion, not necessarily convey factual uh, evidence of a crime, um, but that can be misconstrued and shared widely after that. So it's very, very easy now for anyone to make AI. It's built into quite a lot of our search engines and our social media. Um, so it's very, very easy for people to create it very quickly. Um, but at the moment, the sophistication of that AI, the AI image generation is easy to spot for um, people like myself who are open source researchers. I mean, I saw that particular image that you're referring to, and it was kind of ridiculous. So it, it looked at first glance like this terrible image. But when you looked more closely, there were sort of hands growing out of armpits and things. It was quite an extraordinary uh, picture. Um, how prevalent then is the use of deep fakes? In this particular crisis, we've seen more AI-generated imagery uh, than what I would call deep fakes, um, where it's kind of manipulating the image of uh, an existing person. Um, we have seen uh, deep fakes being used more widely in other conflicts. I'm going back to Russian Ukraine again, but there's a really famous example where um, Zelensky, uh, one of Zelensky's addresses was deep faked, um, and it was... Um, a video was made to make it sound like he was claiming uh, that the Ukrainian army should lay down their arms. Obviously, very dangerous in, in a time of war. Um, and that image, that video could have been 
convincing. Um, if you hadn't noticed the fact that his voice was a little bit lower than usual and also that his head was not in proportion with his body. Uh, Charlotte Ma, thank you uh, very much indeed. Uh, Charlotte is from Bellingcat and as she says, many resources on their website to help you sort fact from fiction. Now, still to come on the programme. We'll find out why French radio is seeing a renaissance. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me from Rome is the journalist Georgia Orlandi. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, So we are going to start off looking at uh, Georgia Maloney's draft. Well, there's so many Georgias in this story. You, me, her. uh, Georgia Maloney's draft bill uh, and and her her proposed reforms. Now, there's been an interview with Italy's Minister for Reform. So tell us more about this. Yeah, so Georgina, uh, the Minister for Reforms uh, has already discussed the issue on a number of occasions with several other Italian newspapers in the past few weeks. Um, As we know, beginning of November, the Cabinet approved the draft bill, but this time the tone of the interview is quite different. Uh, He or she actually defends the proposal, taking a very strong stance on the issue. Um, Also, given that the reporter asked her about questions that have been raised mainly by opposition parties over the draft bill, um, the main focus here, Georgina, is the role of the head of state and fears that somehow his powers will be undermined by this new law. And, and to that, she responds that none of the articles that would be modified concern the actual role of the head of state, which will remain untouched. Mm. What we do know, though, is that in case the government loses the majority in parliament, then it's up to the head of state to choose a replacement from the same political party. Now, the interview also touches on a number of technicalities, Georgina, which perhaps to the average reader might not even sound that interesting. Uh, But I think another highlight and another takeaway from this interview is the fact that uh, when the reporter asks her whether she thinks that it would be fair for Maloney to resign in case she loses either the voting parliament or the referendum, um, well, it's clear that she's saying that Maloney won't go down that path. Uh, We all remember what happened to Matteo Renzi, the former Italian prime minister in 2016, well, he lost uh, his uh, constitutional referendum and he had to resign. Mm-hmm. So there is one uh, legislation that has been banned, uh, has been passed by Italy's parliament, and that is the banning of lab cultured meat. Yes, um, it's quite interesting because this is going to be Europe's first ban on lab-grown uh, meats. And it's interesting to look at the way the story actually appears in La Repubblica newspaper. And it has made uh, headlines uh, everywhere. Here, though, you have a couple of pictures showing a physical confrontation taking place between MPs who were demonstrating against the ban outside parliament and a member of the Farmers Association who was instead in favour of the ban. Um, and it looks like an awkward scene, I must say. And, and this happened while the debate in parliament was still ongoing. And and apparently it didn't end there as the farmer who got aggressed um, has already reported these two MPs to the police. 
Uh, and I and I got the chance to pass in front of Parliament um, yesterday, and I have to say that the scene was quite impressive, but also quite fun in a way to see all these farmers um, surrounding Parliament. And, and, and also, if you look at the context in which uh, this, this story has appeared, um, it's quite significant. That's because the agriculture minister believes that lab-produced meats risk undermining Italian culture, uh, identity and civilization. That's the way he put it. Um, opposition parties have, have said that this is just an ideological propaganda. But clearly, that's pretty much in line with other patriotic measures that this government has uh, passed. And it's pretty much in line with the general climate, uh, if you will, inside the government. Uh, they um, they've tried to sort of like preserve Italian identity and sort of culture. And, and indeed, that speaks volume about the way this right-wing government thinks of the country and thinks of Italian people in general, mm. Regina. Uh, let's let's move over to Libya now, uh, where we know that the airport was forced to shut in 2014 because of the, the conflict there, which damaged at least 80% of the infrastructure. Uh, right now, though, there uh, is a really big push to complete the works to restore it. Yes, Georgina. And um, as you mentioned there, um, infrastructure was badly damaged. And adding to that, we know that approximately 70 percent of infrastructure in the other part of the country, in the eastern part of the country, has been recently damaged by floods uh, that hit the country last September. Uh, Now, um, we know that uh, since 2014, Libya has been split between two rival governments uh, with sporadic fighting that broke out again last August. And the continued polarization of Libya between um, these two sides uh, claiming to be the country's legitimate rulers has indeed complicated international peace efforts, slowing down as well reconstruction efforts, which is the main thing. So as quoted in the article published by Agencia Nova, uh, the Minister of Transport uh, confirmed that works to complete construction of the new airport should be over by 2024. The overall cost amounts to around 100 million euros. Uh, We do understand also that flights connecting Italy, uh, in particular uh, Rome, obviously the capital, and Tripoli already started operating last July. So the hope, uh, Georgina, is that the airport could serve around, could end up serving around 6 million passengers a year, connecting Libya to the rest of the Mediterranean region. And it's going to be a very important hub. It's a crucial step to 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 help the country's economy. Mm. Uh, and Georgia, finally, a, a, a story that we're covering in our headlines. I'd just like to dive into this a little bit more. Uh, can you tell us what the Spanish newspaper El País is saying about Pedro Sanchez and the fact that he has now uh, got his his second term as Spain's prime minister, but the, the kind of fallout from the deals he had to do? Yes, indeed. Well, it seems that uh, it's not going to be a downhill road for for Sanchez because uh, besides the process that have sparked across Spain, now uh, Sanchez has to face an internal political battle uh, with uh, opposition parties that uh, didn't quite like the fact that um, he had ruled out the amnesty deal during his campaign and now he uh, eventually uh, found uh, and reached a compromise with uh, the the Catalan separatists. Um, as we know, um, there are several um, aspects to this, this this law that are still uh, to be clarified. Um, we know that uh, um, the the agreement was announced on Thursday. Uh, a few details were offered there, but. Uh, um, 
we'll understand more in the next few months. We know that the amnesty will cover all events related to the Catalan independence drive from uh, 2012 to present day. Um, but to be effective, there's something quite interesting about this amnesty law is that uh, it must be applied by individual courts. Um, and so, um, and this could be appealed as well before the constitutional court by members of the Congress of deputies, senators, or regional governments. So uh, together with the internal fight, there are lots of technicalities uh, um, basically linked to the, uh, to, to the law itself that still have to be established, Georgina. Georgia Orlandi, thank you. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israeli soldiers say they found a tunnel shaft used by Hamas militants at Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. Hamas denies this. The two telecoms companies in Gaza said all energy sources supplying the network have run out and therefore all services in the territory are down. The UN voiced concern no aid would be delivered to Palestinians today via the Rafah crossing with Egypt. Spain's parliament voted to make Pedro Sanchez prime minister for another term on Thursday, ending a protracted deadlock after an inconclusive general election in July. His Spanish Socialist Workers' Party reached deals with a number of regional parties to earn their backing, including a contentious bill on amnesty for Catalan separatists that sparked protests across Spain. And Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida committed to pursuing mutually beneficial relations in their first face-to-face talks in a year, a sign that Asia's two largest economies are looking to patch up strained ties. Leaders from the 21-member Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum are in San Francisco for the 30th summit, which ends today. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. While the Western world is alarmed at the idea of AI threats from possible bad actors such as Russia or China, Beijing itself has the same concerns. China's spy agency is warned that artificial intelligence could impact on national security. The Minister of the Ministry of State Security listed data leaks, cyber attacks and data manipulation as potential risks, as well as the technology's impact on the economy and the military. This was also a topic that came up at the bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden this week, and they pledged to cooperate on the matter. Well, I'm joined now by William Yang, the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, based in Taipei. William, many thanks for coming back on the show. Is the fact that China is as worried about AI as everyone else mean that it's unlikely to use the technology with malicious intent? Yes, I think at least uh, up until now, most of the messages and official statements and comments about the potential and the power of AI coming out of Beijing have been very cautious. I think, first of all, they recognize that uh, embracing AI, developing AI is in line with China's uh, desire to become the leader in cutting-edge technologies, especially becoming uh, self-sufficient on a lot of these t- cutting-edge technologies after the United States imposed a series of sanctions uh, and also export controls on China and limit China's access to a lot of these advanced semiconductor chips that actually will help China's pursuit in the development of AI. And at the same time, I think we need to understand that the Chinese Communist Party is one of the most, uh, it's this leadership and this uh, political entity that really concerns about its control uh, over uh, 
big country like China. And so the political and I think national security risks that come with the artificial intelligence is uh, also being recognized in China and also being prioritized in terms of the frameworks that they have put forward just uh, last month. And I think uh, this is basically this uh, fundamental contradicting interest that we're seeing in Beijing's calculation about how do they want to deal with uh, artificial intelligence. Mm. Now, during last month's Belt and Road Forum, uh, uh, that they did uh, put forward, as you say, a, a framework for artificial intelligence. Do we know more, anything more about their, their global Global AI governance initiative. Unfortunately not. I think what we are essentially seeing is a very rough blueprint in terms of, I think, laying out China's fundamental concerns and how they want to, I think, manage, find, try to find a balance uh, in its own pursuit of the development of AI. I think as of now, what we can kind of see is that uh, in the large part, China is on the same page as the rest of the global community. I think that is also one of, which is that the development of AI needs to be human-centered, needs to be monitored, and also needs to have a framework around it so that uh, the development does not veer into any harmful potential, you know, creating any harmful potential impact to the human uh, world. And so I think that's also one of the reasons why we saw this as a key area where the U.S. and China was at least able to reach somewhat of a vague consensus during the Biden after the Biden Xi meeting and then putting out, I think, a statement uh, expressing their desire to work together on uh, the development of AI. Mm. Has China developed its own version of ChatGDP or something similar? Right. There have been attempts uh, to to develop their own uh, version of the uh, generative uh, AI. And I think, but as of now, it's not really being a lot widely uh, applied and also widely experimented because I think in China, there's a lot of regulations and also government control over the tech sector over the last few years. And so I think this, again, uh, is coming back to basically how China is really uh, still hoping that the political, the Communist Party will be at the helm of the lead of any sort of uh, technological breakthrough and technolo- technological research and development, because they want to make sure that whatever that uh, is going to be developed is fully in line with the political, the Communist Party's vision. Absolutely. So, I mean, this just goes back to authoritarian control of what citizens can access. Right, exactly. And I think uh, as we go forward, at least one thing uh, that we can probably be pretty sure is that uh, before China has before the Communist Party has the absolute confidence in its own control over the power of AI and how it can be used in a way that will ensure that its own interest is not going to be infringed, uh, we are not possibly going to see China trying to uh, utilize the power of AI to advance its own interests while trying to infringe on other countries like we saw in other areas where they have done. Mm. What does China see as the positive aspects of AI? I think for them, obviously, uh, the positive aspect of AI is to potentially tackle some of the long-term problems that China might, I think, uh, encounter, including an aging society and also an economy that's kind of like stuck in this 
a middle income syndrome where uh, they're not really able to uh, advance towards a service-oriented uh, economy where uh, a lot of the things will then have to be powered by advanced technologies. Uh, China is still kind of like on the cusp of that, but it's facing a lot of different challenges, a stagnant economy, uh, an aging population that may not be able to support that transition. And so I think they hope that AI can step in and really play an important role in terms of uh, filling in the gaps of of this very much needed transition for China. Mm. I was really interested to see that one of the things they appear to be particularly nervous about is data poisoning. Uh, Tell us more about that. Right. Again, I think this goes back to uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, concern about uh, data privacy and also data being overutilized by technology companies. And so uh, in in recent years, we have seen uh, the Chinese Communist Party asking major tech companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and also TikTok's uh, parent company ByteDance handing over uh, their control of the data to the uh, relevant government organs uh, that is basically under the Communist Party. I think essentially it's again that when there's too much, contr- you know, too, too little, con- they have too little control over certain areas that they see potentially could uh, develop something that will undermine their leadership mm. and rule and control over the society, then they want to make sure that uh, they take back a lot of those controls before they see how much uh, power and access and influence they want to give the private sector. And so I think in the field of AI, what we are going to see is essentially a application of a very strict data control uh, related regulation that's going to ensure that the Communist Party, again, has the final say, has the uh, ultimate, uh, I think, uh, control over how data will be accessed and used. William, thank you very much indeed. That's William Yang there. And this is Monocle Radio. It is uh, 2.42 in New York, that's 8.42 in Paris. Latest radio listening figures in France have been revealed and Radio France is doing better than expected, though that's not the case across the board. France Bleu seems to be shedding listeners. Well, to find out more about the audio broadcast landscape in France and why it matters, I'm joined from Paris by Christine Ocron, who is a journalist and a commentator and presenter of the France culture radio programme Affaires Estrangères. So, uh, Christine, many thanks for joining us. What are the latest figures for Radio France? Well, they're extremely good. Now, you know, Georgina, the, usually everybody sort of uh, the self-congratulation is uh, uh, is actually done by many, many um, uh, leaders. But this time around, Radio France, uh, we have a bunch of different radios Um and so uh, they're all doing very well. The all-news radio, France Info, uh, obviously with uh, you know such a heavy uh, load of news, um, has increased uh, its audience. But so has France Culture, which is the uh, the 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 programs I work for. And France Culture is not an all news radio. It is it is more like BBC Four. It's 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 more in depth programs. 
And it's very interesting that the more people feel they are actually flooded with stuff um, on social media in, in particular, uh, the more they they also want to dig in and, and to have access to people who really spend a lot of time uh, devoting themselves to one issue. Uh, I have a program every Saturday morning on foreign affairs where I never have politicians. Um, I only have experts. And so people who actually share their knowledge. And I think that's what people are hungry for. And has the proliferation of podcasts affected the broadcast industry there? I mean, it doesn't seem to have done at all. It's quite the reverse. Because the fact that you can actually decide what you want to listen at what time of the day or night, it's a, it's a second life or a third life to to most programmes. It's, it's a very, very... Uh, uh, new and vibrant dimension, uh, particularly France. France Culture is now the second most podcast uh, radio program in in the country. Congratulations, Christine. Well done on your great, great figures. Many thanks for talking to us. That was Christine Ockrant there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. time now to turn our eyes to southeastern Europe with Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay, who joins us now from Ljubljana. Uh, Guy, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina, and good morning, everyone. What is Zelensky's Balkans war warning? Well, this is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, and he's warning that Russia is up to no good in the Balkans. Now, he makes speeches on a regular basis, as we know, and uh, in his latest one, he reckoned that he's got solid information that not only was uh, Russia responsible for what's been going on between Israel and Gaza over the past month or so, uh, but that uh, Russia was also cooking up something in the Balkans in case that isn't enough of a distraction. And is a very specific war is that he thinks that Russia is going to ensure that one Balkan country goes to war with another. And which two countries could he possibly be talking about? Well, the thing is, you'd think that, uh, you know, the obvious candidates would be Kosovo and Serbia, but of course Ukraine doesn't recognise Kosovo, so uh, (laughs) pick another one, Uh, (laughs) would seem to be the implication there. I mean, honestly, I'm being a bit uh, flippant, uh, honestly, but... 
the, the fact of the matter is, you know, what Volodymyr Zelensky is saying is something which people ask on a regular basis. They certainly ask me on a regular basis. Do we need to be worried about what's going on in the Western Balkans? Do we need to worry about what Russia is doing mm. in the Western Balkans? And the answer is it's, it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, in terms of having, you know, feet on the ground and personnel to stir up trouble, there's not a great deal of evidence that Russia's got an awful lot of those. What it does have is quite an efficient machinery for disinformation. Mm. Um, through RT and through Sputnik, um, whose works are, are published very happily in, for example, Serbian media, which are, are frankly uh, cash poor and very grateful to get any content they can get their hands on. So it's that sort of stirring up which is the issue. And we saw in September what could have gone quite badly wrong between Serbia and Kosovo when we had this uh, shooting in North Kosovo mm. that still hasn't been properly explained. And a lot of people are wondering if somehow Russia had some sort of a hand in that. And of course, you know, all of us Balkan watchers, Balkan livers, Balkan theorists, we've been, you know, knocking around our own theories about what exactly might have been going on there. And the answer is nobody really knows quite. Uh, but there are certainly scenarios in which you could see a hand of Moscow there. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, Serbia and Kosovo have both been in Brussels, but they didn't meet each other. Yeah, I got all excited about this. I thought, gosh, we're actually going to get people from Pristina and Belgrade in the same room together for the first time since this uh, shooting in September. And well, they were in the same room, but not at the same time uh, is what happened. Uh, so the delegations from uh, Pristina and Belgrade individually met with Miroslav Lajcak, who's the EU's special envoy on the, the Kosovo-Serbia Kosovo dialogue. And uh, he was on the social media saying, there's been progress on a number of issues on our agenda. Uh, and uh, frankly, from what's coming out of Belgrade and Pristina, it doesn't sound like there's been a lot of progress at all. Um, and that, you know, Kosovo is repeating this line that nothing's going forward until Serbia actually signs um, the agreements which we supposedly made uh, earlier in the year. Um, Serbia saying nothing's going forward until Kosovo implements this association of Serb municipalities, which was agreed upon in 2013, uh, but never implemented. So we're still at loggerheads, Georgina. Finally, Guy, a very quick look at Kosovo Memorial Machinations. What's going on? And this is a really interesting one, a very odd one, that the French and German embassies in Kosovo moved a, a war memorial in an Orthodox cemetery in Pristina, the military section of the cemetery. They moved a memorial to First World War Serbian troops. And it looks very much like they did this so that when the photos of the Remembrance Day events were taken, that the Serbian memorial would be less prominent. And this, of course, has prompted all sorts of outrage uh, among Kosovo Serbs and from Serbia's government as well, with the foreign minister, Ivica Dacic, calling it scandalous. Um, President Vucic saying he doesn't know what was going on in the heads of these diplomats to think that moving the monument was a good idea. And uh, now uh, the French embassy saying it will consult all sides on the technical possibilities of returning all the monuments on the military section of the cemetery to where they were previously. Um, but no sign on things actually being moved back just yet. But uh, it does seem astonishingly insensitive, to put it mildly. Absolutely. Guy, thank you very much indeed. That is Guy Delaunay there. And you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
the show with a look at the role of theatre in capturing the zeitgeist and presenting a mirror to society, often using the exact words of the protagonists, from the verbatim plays of Gillian Slovo, who wrote Grenfell, in the words of Survivors, the National Theatre's exploration of that 2017 fire at Grenfell Tower in West London that took 72 lives and devastated hundreds more, to Gwyneth Goes Skiing, opening in December, which is all about the legal trial between Gwyneth Paltrow and an optometrist who sued each other after colliding on a Utah mountainside. And of course, the wildly popular retelling of the real-life case that became known as the Wagatha Christie trial, in which Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney, both wives of British footballers, faced each other in court. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by Matt Wolfe, theatre critic at the International uh, New York Times. Uh, Matt, when you put it like that, it just sounds ridiculous. Well, I mean, I think, Georgina, who needs fiction when we've got fact, right? You know, but players don't need to invent anything. It's all there in front of them. But uh, it's, it is interesting. There are sort of two strands to this, as you mentioned. The verbatim theatre, the Gillian Slover, the Grenfells, uh, the Tricycle, now the Kilnan Kilburn had, you know, many years of this. Nick Kent's That's doing Nick Kent, that, exactly, yeah. talking about Afghanistan and, and, you know, the Nuremberg trials 50 years on. Those are very serious, almost scholarly, kind of line-for-line, transcript, uh, you know, letter-for-letter. And that's a way of kind of recording history. Uh, something like Gwyneth Goes Skiing, I'm not sure. That that seems, I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen it. But it sounds like a, a kind of uh, exercise in uh, voyeurism and an opportunity for Linus Karp, who's playing Gwyneth, uh, to return to the fold, having last year played Princess Diana. Yes. <laughs> so I wonder why, though, theatre is uniquely placed to tell these types of stories whilst they're still in the public consciousness. Yes, well, I think several things. One is that um, there's often the feeling, whether right or wrong, that theatre is somehow less mediated. There are no kind of pesky journalists and editors slanting things, telling you what you should think, editing out. Now, of course, theatre edits as well. But I think the feeling is the theatre gives you the raw material and you make of it what you will. It's, it's kind of, you know, right there in front of you. Uh, the other thing is that theatre can be very light on its feet. You know, movies, for instance, they languish in development hell forever. Uh, theatre, something happens and you can construct a play about it. And in fact, the Royal Court during the pandemic uh, took this to its extreme with a wonderful uh, enterprise called Living Newspaper, where they took different sections of the Royal Court Theatre and uh, siphoned them off into sections like as if they were sections of a newspaper that you were reading. And so you would get seven or eight stories in different corners of the theatre responding to that day's events. That seemed to me the perfect convergence. Yeah. I mean, often these shows are only on for a very short run. The Paltrow musical, for instance, <clears throat> will last less than a month. Yes. Why is that? I mean, are they just not interesting after the conversation's moved on? I think so. I mean, there is the danger with this sort of thing. The topicality can date very, very quickly. And, you know, is there really an infinite audience for uh, a retelling of the Wag of the Christie trial, which at this point feels, almost feels like ancient history already? Uh, it, it's... It, we don't know because we're living in the middle of it now. But what will these things look like 10, 15 years from now? Will people even know what Wagatha Christie is? The Gwyneth thing will be a kind of weird little footnote in her Wikipedia entry. So I don't think you want to overdo it. But on the other hand, um, you know, this is a pre-Christmas treat, so why not? Absolutely. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm <personally>. sure you <laughs> can't. Um, but I wonder, though, if the, if the more serious side of things, and indeed even the kind of light or, or satirical, are useful vehicles for us as an audience to help 
us process current events? I think a lot of people don't think about uh, various events, certainly Grenfell, in quite the same way as they would or do when they see it being enacted in front of you. There is something still, this is the glory of theater, there is something about flesh and blood people in the moment uh, retelling a narrative that you think you knew, but you probably didn't. I mean, I remember years ago, uh, <clears throat> The Color of Justice, a beautiful, beautiful piece about the Stephen Lawrence trial, uh, again, part of the uh, then tricycle output. Uh, yes, we all thought we knew it was going on there. But when we saw court testimony, when we saw Doreen Lawrence there uh, acted, of course, in front of us, it had a whole new dynamic. And I think with Grenfell, you, you are kind of brought into the moment in a way that is very raw and painful and valuable. So Grenfell is transferring to New York. It is. And it was such a British tragedy with British politics, race, socioeconomic policies at its heart. How do you think it will go down in America? Well, it, it, it you know, they're not putting it on Broadway. as a big Broadway extravaganza. They're putting it at a play, very good theatre in New York called St. Anne's Warehouse, which is in Brooklyn, and it has a reputation for taking British stuff and for being quite sort of socially conscious. Listen, uh, I mean, <laughs> Britain hardly owns the patent on uh, malfeasance and, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of acting Im- improperly and, and worse than that. And I think people will find all sorts of points of connection. Let's see if the American theatre will do anything about the upcoming election. That would be very interesting. Or maybe that will be left to the British theatre. Well, I mean, that is the thing, is that the division between this, because it does seem that Britain does this a lot more than anyone else. I have to say, I think there's a tradition in Britain of being more responsive in general to things quite quickly. I mean, look, it's very different, but looking spitting image back in the day, which would take the, that week's events and there were, cart, you know, puppets at the weekend uh, kind of chronicling it all in, in, in comic form. Uh, America's, you know, the tradition that satire in American theatre, satire is what closes on Saturday night. I think <laughs> the American theatre is a little reluctant to the satiric end. And I, I think they're a bit warier of the kind of verbatim end. Maybe they think it's a bit dry, but it doesn't have to be. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Just finally, what would be your recommendations for the best kind of shows of these the, these genres, this genre? Well, the Grenfell one, certainly. I mean, you know, it, it's a vivid reminder of uh, really the fragility of society, but also the, the fact that people can come together uh, in an auditorium to pay respect, to pay homage. Uh, the Stephen Lawrence one back in the day, absolutely brilliant. And some of the James, we haven't talked about James Graham, the, the playwright and television and film writer, who's made sort of a career out of plucking recent events and putting them bang on stage. Dear England, right now, it's not verbatim theatre, but it's the most thrilling play in town about the football squad we all know. And there they are. Excellent. Matt, thank you so much. That's Matt Wolfe there. Uh, And if listeners want to know more about Gillian Slovo, who wrote Grenfell, which is about to transfer to New York, you can find an interview with her in our Meet the Writers archive. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our producers, Isabella Jewell, Christy O'Grady and Monica Lillis, our researcher, Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and I'm going to be back with you on The Briefing. That's live at midday in London. Uh, the Globalist will return on the, at the same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.